Um, first of all, welcome everybody. Let me just start by telling you that uh, the staff here from the Taub Center is uh, spread throughout the country. And you should just know that there is always a possibility of, a, of an alarm, of a, of a siren, in which case some of the people will have to go down to, the, uh, to their bomb shelters, to the safe rooms. Uh, two hours ago, I know here in Petah Tikva, we had, to, we had to be in our safe room. I think quite a few of the people here on the screen from Israel today spent at least some time inside their, their bomb shelters. So that may happen. If it happens, there will be people who will disappear from the screen all of a sudden. But, you know, but there'll be other people who can hopefully fill in uh, for, for uh, if, if that occurs. Um, so we're really delighted to welcome you to the, uh, to the second exclusive reading we, we, we have. This one's dedicated to addressing the ongoing and unprecedented challenges facing, in, facing Israel. That's what we're doing in the entire series. We want to extend our thanks to our esteemed board members and our dedicated supporters who have joined us tonight. Uh, your unwavering commitment to the TAP Center is instrumental in us completing our mission. Um, for those of you who don't know the TAP Center, who are new to the organization, let me give you a very brief introduction. Uh, we are a leading social policy think tank based in Jerusalem. We're dedicated to conducting unbiased, apolitical, data-driven, multidisciplinary research on the most pressing social and economic issues facing Israel. I'm going to take off the live stream uh, uh, um, <laughs> screen. Uh, our work covers a range of critical areas, which includes education, early childhood, demography, health, welfare, labor markets, and macroeconomics. And recently we expanded to include also health and the environment. Our objective is to shape policies that advance the well-being of all Israelis. Israeli policymakers, legislators, media, and citizens rely on the Taub Center and our, on our research for informed policy decisions and public discourse. Furthermore, philanthropists from around the world trust us to guide their social investments in Israel. It's worth noting that the Taub Center maintains its independence and its trusted reputation across the political spectrum by not accepting any government funding. We are grateful for the support of individuals, foundations, and federations from Israel and around the world. Tonight, we are privileged to have Professor John Gall, the Principal Researcher and Welfare Policy Program Chair at the Taub Center, as our speaker. He'll be addressing the topic, Welfare During War, How Israel Deals with Welfare Needs During Conflict. Professor Gall is a distinguished scholar in the Paul Bearwall School of Social Work and Social Welfare at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. His expertise has been pivotal in numerous government committees and other arenas, including his important role in the Committee for Combating uh, Poverty. Uh, with respect to questions and answers, you're all invited to put your questions in the chat. And after the, the, uh, the presentation is concluded, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll ask Johnny to address them. With no further ado, Johnny, the stage is yours. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the introduction, Avi, and thank you all for coming. It's been a, it's been a very difficult two, more than two weeks for all of us here in Israel, I, I suppose for many of you around the world. And, um, and uh, we're still dealing with a very, very uh, difficult situation, um, us and other people in the region. Uh, I want to talk today about, about a very specific aspect of the conflict, and that's welfare issues and the way in which here in Israel, we're dealing with the uh, issues of welfare, uh, dealing with people's needs during a conflict. Uh, what I'll 
try to do we we're already two and a half, we're two and a half weeks into this conflict so we don't have a lot of hard data data and uh, um, to present a very a full picture of what's been happening we've tried to collect data from different sources and to try to put together the picture that i'll try to show you today uh, but i think this is only the beginning of a study that will do it to help to try to understand the impact of the war on welfare and how we've dealt with welfare needs so I would really want uh, to begin with, I want to thank Shabit Madhala and uh, Nir Kedar who helped put together this, uh, uh, this presentation. Before I, uh, I talk about what I really want to talk about, let me just tell you a very, very brief uh, um, personal story. We all have personal stories uh, uh, that emerged over the last two weeks, very often difficult personal stories. So I'll just tell you mine because I think it'd be useful in trying to understand the topic of this talk. I want to talk about a, a, a PhD student of mine. His name is Ron. He uh, was originally from Faraza, which is one of the settlements, the Israeli kibbutzim just on the, on the, uh, on the uh, Gaza border. Ron arrived at, on the kibbutz on Friday evening. Uh, he'd been at, uh, at a conference in, in Germany and he went to visit his mother and the rest of his family who lived on the kibbutz. He stayed at his mother's place that evening. And of course, at 6.30 in the morning, as we all know, the, the terrible, terrible events of Saturday began. Um, Ron, his mother, his two nieces and his sister were went to the security room. They were there, there for 32 hours in the security room. Uh, Ron and his sister took turns in holding the door so that nobody could get in. They were attacked twice by Hamas terrorists in their home. The army was in the home, in their home at one stage. But they all survived. Ron's, unfortunately, Ron's brother, who was in the, uh, in the security uh, team and the kibbutz, died fighting the terrorists. Uh, Ron, his mother, his sister, and his nieces, they were evacuated to uh, Shvaim, which is a kibbutz not far away, not far from Tel Aviv, where there's a hotel, and that's where they are now. Uh, I tell you Ron's story, of course, to give you a sense of what many of us all of us perhaps have have seen and felt and uh, over the last two weeks but I also wanted I want to use it to try to 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 show the way in which wealth issues have been dealt with for good and for bad over the last two and a half weeks so let me tell you a bit about what I'm going to do now you can press the button Michal. okay so I, I want to begin by by giving you very very briefly some of the numbers that are relevant to talking about welfare during this war, so where things stand. Then I want to move on and talk about civil society. Civil society has played a major, major role in dealing with welfare needs during this conflict. We have some numbers on, on what civil society has been doing, and I want to use those numbers to try to describe the, the really the critical role that civil society has played, and also to try to think about what this means for Israeli society today and in the future. Then I want to talk about the government or the state, and I want to try to show you how, unfortunately, the what, what I think what we offer the term we often use in 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 social policy is a hollowed out state to try to show how the state exists, but it's been 
to a certain degree been weakened to a major degree. And what has happened, I think, in the last two weeks shows why the state has struggled to deal better with welfare needs. That's changing to a certain degree now. I'll talk about that a bit later. Then I want to talk about, about some of the people that have really been doing a lot to have an impact on welfare of, on, of other people during this their conflict, and that's social workers. I admit I'm biased. I teach at the School of Social Work. I have a PhD in social work, and, I, and, and my wife's a social worker. But nevertheless, I want to try to talk about the importance and the relevance of social work in this specific con context and why social workers have really have gone back to their roots, which is a good thing to a certain degree. And then I'll try to conclude by trying to think, okay, what's next? Though, of course, we don't really know what is going, what is next. So that's what I'll try to do. I'll, and of course, I'll only touch upon many of these issues. I'll be really happy if you have questions, queries, or disagree with what I say, that's fine also. So we can talk, we can, we can deal with that when in another 20 minutes or so. Okay, so let's let's try to see where things stand, which is of course gives the, the context to welfare needs and welfare services. Okay, so uh, so in this conflict until now, the numbers are the numbers of people killed, civilian and soldiers is about 1,400 in Israel. We don't know the exact number, unfortunately, even two and a half weeks after this conflict began for very different reasons, and some of them are too gruesome to talk about. But these are the numbers, which is a very, very large number for Israeli society and something that, that, that of course, touches many, many of us uh, here in Israel. Okay, besides the 1,400 People killed their 222 hostages in Gaza, held, being held by the Hamas, as you all know, two women. Uh, I know the husband, one of the women who was released yesterday, but two women or four women have been released, but there are, are still many, many people being held hostage in, uh, by the Hamas in Gaza. Go on, uh, Michal. There are still 278 people wounded in hospital, some of them very critically injured uh, as a result of, of mainly of, of events on, on, the, on October 7th. At the, at over a thousand uh, civilian casualties are now being dealt with by two departments of the National Insurance Institute, which for people who are not Israeli, that, that's, that's our social security institution. I'll talk about them a bit later because this is one of the really the, 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 the impressive ways in which Israel deals with uh, this terrible situation. And of course, about 300,000 reservists have been called up. This has implications for, for, the, for the, uh, the economic system, of course, the impl implications for families and also even for higher education. 5,000 of the students at the Hebrew University, for example, and are now on active service. Another aspect of this conflict and a really unusual aspect of this conflict, at least for Israel, is that there are now 130,000 civ civilians who have been evacuated either from the south, you can see the yellow line around the Gaza Strip, or from the north, you can see the red line around, around the Lebanese border. So these, these evacuees, these civilians have been evacuated to different places across the country. I, I heard that in Tel Aviv there are about 20,000 evacuees, but they've been spread around hotels and across the country. Many of them just left their homes, 
for safety reasons, others have, have left because their homes have been demolished or, or, or they're under attack, which is the case in the South mainly. Uh, we don't know where this, where this is going. What, before I move on then, let me just try to try to tell you what, I, what these all these numbers mean for the welfare system. Basically, we're looking at people who were victims of the atrocities on October 7th, the members of Kibbutzim the mem and the people living in towns. We're looking at the families of those who were killed or, or who were taken hostage. We're looking at the evacuee population and all the families of those people, or many of the families of those people who were called up. And all these people who now very often need the support of social services, assistance from social workers, from, from, from people who have access to, to serve, who have access to sort of the, 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 the resources that they need, the help that they need, all these people are added to the over, over a million people who are regular clients of welfare in Israel. So we're talking about really an overwhelming number of people who need the support of social service, need crucial support of social service to, to deal with issues of trauma, to deal with material needs, to deal with family uh, conflicts, to deal with really diverse needs uh, that, that they find very difficult to deal with and they need support. And this is what the welfare or social services need to do. Okay, let's move on and talk about what has happened over the last two weeks. One of the really uh, uh, amazing um, developments over the last two weeks is how far civil society, I mean nonprofits, I mean uh, 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 the third sector, how civil society or uh, civil society was really quick off the mark. You know, these service, these these people began providing for needs virtually on day one of this conflict and have been doing so to really a remarkable degree ever since. So, so the, the civil society has really had a dramatic, dramatic impact on the way in which Israeli society deals with the welfare needs of people. One of the, one of what, what has happened, just to give you some of the numbers, these were supplied by the Institute for Civil Society and Philanthropy in Israel at the University. Professor Michal Almopar uh, uh, provided me with this, these estimates of, uh, of what civil society has been doing. So, of course, in Israel, we have thousands of established civil society organizations who have been trying to organize and address needs across the country, both in areas close to the border, but also among the evacuee uh, population. Just to give you an example of one of these organizations, I, 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 was, I thought of LATET, which is a, perhaps the biggest, the largest uh, aid organization in Israel. So LATET in the last two weeks has distribu distributed um, emergency aid kits to over 11,000 people. This is equal to $2 million. So, so civil society, established civil society organizations have really played a major, major role in dealing, addressing needs in, during, this, during this period. What has been really unusual and unique in this period has been the emergence of at least a thousand new civil initiatives, groups that were established on the local or national level to deal with needs, groups that didn't even exist, or at least they didn't exist to provide welfare needs before that. Some of these organizations are, low, are small local organizations. Some of them are big national organizations, but they're providing 
amazing support and really, really diverse types of support and addressing very, very diverse needs across, uh, across uh, society, across Israel. So these could be local organizations or they can be large national organizations. One of the really interesting large national organizations is an organization called Brothers and Sisters and Sisters in Arms. This was an organ, uh, group that was established during the, the civil, um, the protest movement in Israel, which preceded this war. Uh, it, it was established in the struggle against the, um, the, the judicial overhaul. But the moment the out the the uh, moment the war began, this group began to organize and provide uh, services, uh, provide uh, material needs to people. They they have an enormous enormous warehouse outside of Tel Aviv, where hundreds and thousands of volunteers are engaged in providing support for soldiers and for the military and for private people and for communities across Israel and they're doing a, a, a wonderful a wonderful job. Uh, I think when we look at this sort of these civil initiatives we can we can think to some degree of the role that technology now plays how how easy it is to organize people using WhatsApp or using other sort of technical uh, support. We can also think of how the protest movement I think created or uh, we have groups that that, that emerge from the protest, a movement that were already organized and they could change their goals very quickly. And to a certain degree, I think these civil initiatives re uh, reflect, I think, a, um, a, a, a profound sort of mistrust or at least uh, 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 um, distrust of the government. And I think people feel the need to organize themselves. So we have hundreds of thousands of volunteers in, involved in activities now all over the last two and a half weeks in Israel. The numbers are really, really amazing. There's always volunteers in, in times of war, but I think this time it, the numbers are much, much greater. And, 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 and in many places, there are too many volunteers to, 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 get, to, to, to know what to do with. Uh, some people put the number at a million volunteers, which is large number for a small country like Israel. So we have hundreds of thousands of volunteers doing amazing jobs in very, very different ways. Where does this where does the money come from to, 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 to do all this? So according to the, the data that uh, I got from the Institute for Civil Society and Philanthropy, about $500 million has come from US sources over the last, um, over the last uh, two and a half weeks much of it from federations, from foundations, from federations, say, Toronto, New York, from the uh, uh, from uh, JDF, from different organizations that have really managed to, to send a lot of money to Israel to enable much of this activity to take place. And that's a really, really, really important. Another source of funding, particularly for the civil initiatives, is crowdsourcing. This is also something relatively new in Israel, at least with regard to volunteering and to welfare, welfare services. The estimate is that about that, that about $25, $25 million dollars has been has been uh, collected from crowdsourcing for very, very diverse organizations, mainly for the civil initiatives over the last two and a half weeks. And also businesses have been playing a major role and corporate responsibility, I'll call it corporate responsibility, but basically businesses are sending a lot of money, services, uh, 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 providing different sorts of material support for, uh, for society. 
So really, uh, um, civil society has been playing a major, um, an amazing role. I was in Shvayim to visit Ron, my, my postdoc, my, po my PhD student, and the amount of people there, volunteers who are trying to help out, the amount of things that they were providing was really, really stunning. Uh, people like Ron reached Shvayim without, without anything except the clothes they were wearing, and they received everything uh, from uh, a big warehouse that was established on, on the, on, near the hotel. They received support from people. It's really been uh, 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 an amazing uh, uh, an effort and very, very crucial, particularly in the, in the first weeks of this uh, conflict. Without civil society, undoubtedly, the situation of a lot of people in Israel would have been very much, much worse. We can ask, I think, okay, so what about the state? Isn't it the state's role to deal with welfare needs? And the, and, 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 the, and the answer, of course, yes, this is the state's role, and it will certainly be the state's role in the future. Uh, but what we've seen over the last two weeks, I hope this is beginning to change, is really the state has, has really struggled to play a, a major role in providing for wealth, the welfare needs of people. And we see a, 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 we see a lack of coordination between different, uh, uh, different entities within the state. We see a lack of resources to address these. We see very often the state asking people to volunteer to provide services, to provide resources to help out. And we also see a lack of trust between citizens and the state, which is, I think, something that has emerged over the last few years, but was, became very, very uh, marked over the last uh, year. So really what, what, what we seem to see is that the state, at least with regard to social services and, and provision of, of welfare, what we see is a state which has really been underfunded over the last 10 years. Uh, an estimate that, uh, that uh, research that Shavit and I undertook, we, we found that in order to provide acceptable level of welfare service to all of society in, in regular times, the government needs to spend another $1.5 billion more than it stands today on welfare services. So, so really, services. So really, the, the state was struggling because the welfare services were so underfunded. Welfare services in Israel have been out, outsourced to a large degree over the last 20 years. In a study that we undertook at the Taub Center a few years ago, we, we saw that 82% of the budget of the welfare ministry was out was to outsource provision of services. This may be a good thing that often, but it also creates very different major problems for states, the state's ability to, to control, to regulate the provision of services. It, it, it really takes knowledge from the state and, give in, and it's in the hands of, of civil society or private uh, providers. And it creates a weakness, I think, in the state and, 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 and the state's ability to really control how welfare services are provided. What has happened also over the last few years, unfortunately, has been a, a sort of a, a very dominant anti-professionalism, uh, sense of, of anti-professionalism, a, a lot of criticism of professionals within the government, within the government bureaucracy. I think this was enhanced over the last uh, year, but this has existed for a long time. And the result has been that many of the people, the best people in government, and, and, and in government there are, are and have been great people, many of these people left 
to go to the private sector because they felt that they couldn't do what they need to do within government. So this is really very demoralizing for many people within the government sector. And of course, what we've seen is a real politicization of government. So we see that many of the people who have joined government or many people who have been recruited for government have been recruited on the basis of the political, uh, the political uh, affiliation rather than perhaps their, their, their knowledge or their, their capacity. Politicization has also taken the form of the establishment of a large number of of government agencies, all dealing with the same issue, in this case, welfare. Today, there are five different government ministries, all dealing with different aspects of welfare. They're, they're run by people from three different political parties. So what we see is a lot of overlap, a lot of conflict, a lot of, 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 of really of squandering of resources that should go to people in need. So this is all this has created a really a hollowed out state that has found it, at least at the beginning, very, very difficult to address welfare needs. Of course, there are still, before I talk about social works, I, I do want to say some really good things about, about the state and what the state has, has, has done. So firstly, one of the really amazing things that we have in Israel, which is unlike any other country, is that we have legislation that provides Relatively, gener really gener relatively generous uh, uh, provision, uh, um, help, material, and cash help for victims of acts of terrorism. And this law, which is really, really important in the past to help people who have who, been injured or families, people who were killed in terrorist attacks, but this legislation is now being in, uh, now being uh, made more inclusive and also the families of the hostages and the hostages themselves will be covered by this law. This legislation really provides, uh, I think, a generous provision and immediate provision and help for families and for people affected by hostile action. And, and this is, and this is being done very, very quickly over the last two weeks. The government's funding the evacuees or many of the evacuees. So people like Ron are, are being able to uh, can stay at this hotel, we don't know for how long, and receive food and shelter, et cetera, because the government began funding this from the very beginning. The government has begun to strengthen the, the social services at the beginning that the social workers were overwhelmed and couldn't really deal with needs. Today, we see more and more government support for the professionals providing the professional the health professionals the social the social services providing support and we see i think a very important development that is that the government has, is letting local government provide services and play a leadership role this not doesn't always work but in many cases we see that local government is playing a really really important role in providing and addressing this very specific needs of communities which which they lead so that's important and finally, I think what's, what we see now and what I really think is important is that there's more and more government collaboration with civil society. So what we see now is government establishing joint ventures of civil society, government establishing roundtables where they discuss with civil society needs and ways to address needs. One of the, in the social services, one of the, I think the really important initiatives just adopt, uh, introduced yesterday, yesterday, I think, is that the government, together with the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, what we call Kerli Didut, they created a, a, a fund, uh, a $5 million fund to provide 
uh, address the needs of specific people, the material needs of, immediately to address the needs of specific of, of individuals who are either evacuated or live on the border areas. So there's so there's all sorts of collaborations which are really great, and and I think this is a good sign that government is beginning to try to address this really unique situation. Let me say something about social workers because really social workers have come to the fore in this uh, in this conflict. Social workers are educated or social workers know that their role is to help people in a broad way when they have needs. So social workers can provide psychosocial treatment. They can help people address issues of trauma, of conflicts within the family, within the community, with other people. But social work workers also know that the context is very important. And in a conflict like this, the family and the community is very, very important, particularly in the case of the people who suffered on October 7th. Entire communities were, were decimated. Half of the members of Kibbutzim were killed. So it's very, very important when these people, when you deal with these people to try to work and think of their community and think how they can, the community can play a role and be strengthened. And of course, social workers uh, are motivated to engage in, in social justice. This is their ethos. So what we've seen now is that social workers have really been playing a major, major role in trying to address needs during this conflict. I can just give you a very, very two examples of two social workers in Schwein, which is where, as I said, Ron is. So the two, one of the social workers, Efrat Halevi, she was a student of mine. She had her own, she has her own private clinic in Tel Aviv. But for the last two weeks, last two weeks, she closed her clinic and has spent all day, every day, working with people and addressing people's needs in Schwein. Another social worker, Liron David, who actually lives on the, on the keyboards, also stopped everything else she was doing and began to work as a social worker. She now she coordinates all the services provided to people, to the kibbutz members, the members of kibbutz Faraza who live in the hotel, provide all of their needs and deal with families and individuals and try to address their trauma and the difficulties they face after the attacks. So on the one hand, we have a social workers playing a really important role. On the other hand, we must realize that social workers have been through very difficult times over the last few years. They've been the subject of really brutal attacks by some politicians. They've, uh, they've suffered from uh, uh, difficult working conditions, low wages, and in fact, in many places in Israel, they are very, the social services are very, very under, understaffed, not because there's not enough not money for, to, 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 to pay for people, because social workers are just not coming to work in social services because of the wages and the conditions. And, and, and I think what we see now is that many social workers, both as volunteers or as professionals, are really providing what is the, perhaps the most important type of service of social service at this period, which is so, which is welfare, which is a, which is dealing with people in the context of their uh, needs. Of course, uh, Maxine, yes, social workers, of course, receive training to deal with with trauma. Many perhaps don't uh, don't normally deal with trauma, but I think we should think about social workers are dealing with immediate needs in the long term. Psychiatrists, psychologists, 
we'll have to deal in the long term with people's trauma and people's needs. But in the immediate, at, at this stage, you need somebody to, to go in there to look at their needs in a very, very broad way. So let me just try to, to, to summarize this very, very brief uh, uh, overview of welfare needs and the way we deal, we've been dealing with them in Israel over the last, uh, uh, over the last uh, two weeks. We don't know what's next because this will depend to a large degree on developments, how this war develops, will people, more people be evacuated, will be, more people be injured, how long will people who are injured, uh, are, uh, how long will people who are injured uh, who have been evacuated remain far away from their homes, all these questions are unclear. But very clearly, we are already seeing a certain degree of fatigue in civil society. And I think what we should expect is that civil society will gradually, the volunteers, the organizations will be playing a smaller role in providing for needs over time. Um, already we see in some of the civil society organizations a lack of resources, either because government isn't funding some of the programs that they were, 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 were uh, providing, or because they've been spending a lot, of, a lot of their resources on addressing these immediate needs. So I think what we're going to see is that some of the civil society will be playing a smaller role. There'll be a greater role for the state, for government, hopefully uh, a more organized and a more comprehensive role for government. I think we'll see more collaboration between government and civil society and even with the business community, which is a good thing and an important thing, both with regard to resources, but also with regard to addressing needs in very different ways. And, and civil society does this and is very, very resourceful in dealing with new needs. I hope we'll see better coordination within the government between different government ministries. And I hope we'll see- Sorry, and I hope we'll see much more funding for government for social services in the future. And this will enable more social workers to deal with needs and more resources given to people who have needs. So that I'll stop here. I hope that sort of gave you a, a sort of an overview of the issue. Thank you very much, Johnny. That was very, very interesting. Uh, I learned a lot. Um, let's open this up to questions. I will read to you a comment we have uh, from, uh, we have two, two, so far two comments, one from Karen, Karen Lipani, who is, which is a comment, not really a question, and then a question um, from Anat Gaffney. So, uh, so Karen say, says as follows, there's an overwhelming consensus among the public in Israel that a strong rear is of critical importance in times of war, that the work of volunteers is particularly important and it is evident that there are many initiatives in the public that are successfully implemented through volunteers. However, long-term volunteering is in an emergency situation is not volunteering. It is necessary and important work for everything. Over the years, much research effort has been invested in trying to define what transparent work is. Studies that have examined according to which criteria we distinguish between work and non-work have revealed that the key characteristics of work is an activities for which, activity for which we receive payment. According to this logic, any activity that can be paid for is work by its very definition. But any activity that does not qualify for financial compensation is not recognized at work. Even if it is arduous and essential, requires skills and involves a lot of effort. So if you want to refer to that, Johnny, if you want to say anything about that. Yeah, I think that's a, a good comment and, so, and it's something that is 
really uh, um, emerged over the last few days with, it, with regard to social workers, but also for other people who've been involved in volunteering. So, so of course, people can't volunteer, uh, at least in, in the way society is structured today, people can't continue volunteering because they need to be they need the they need to be paid for their work and uh, the question that it has arisen is okay so look, for example let's have we all we have these 1000 or 2000 social workers all doing wonderful wonderful jobs volunteering but they can't continue doing that unless they're getting paid for that job they're, they're doing this either instead of their regular job or in addition to their regular job if we really think that they're, what they're doing is important then, I, then they should be, be, be paid for what they're doing. This is the only way, firstly, to make sure they continue doing what they're doing and also to, to enable us to make sure they're doing something that we really need them to do. So, so I think this is an important issue and something that we'll have to address now that the initial stage of, of large-scale volunteering is beginning to, to, to sort of slowly uh, uh, end. Um. Thank you. Anat Gafi has asked as follows. He asks, she asks, what happens to weak localities? Is there an overarching structure that prevents them from being lost in the situation? For example, I have heard that Sederot is strong, but Ofakim is weak in fighting for their needs. I actually have heard, I heard the exact opposite, Anat, but, 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 <laughs> but, but I'm not sure, but, but I, 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 don't, I didn't do a study of this, so I don't know. Clearly, clearly, the the uh, the places that were evacuated and were most hit by the the war, of course, their uh, their situations is worse. Is worse. Uh, uh, this is true of the Bedouin communities in the south and of many of the of the towns in the south. I know that the government has established. I think this week established a a a a. a, a, a a, a, a center or, or initiative to rebuild the settlements and the towns uh, on the Gaza or near the Gaza border. So hopefully that will be one way of trying to strengthen the communities. But the problem is, of course, that local communities not only have the most social the, mo the, the most social problems, they also have the least resources to deal with them, which is, of course. I don't want to say again that we've done research on this, but we have done research on this. In fact, we're just publishing, we'll be publishing it ne next month. But that's the situation. And, and, and this, is, this is partly because they don't have the resources, but also be, partly because the government doesn't, doesn't give enough resources because of the way funding is structured. So uh, I, I think it would, be a, it would be a very important thing if one of the things that came out of this conflict is the government learned that if they want good social services, or they want people to have equal social rights, equal access to good services, then they need to put a lot more money into uh, what happens in weak or, or, or low-income uh, uh, communities. This is true of the Bedouin community, of the Arab community, and also some of the, Jew the Jewish towns, of course, in that area in the South specifically. Uh, Boaz Ram has put a link in the chat to uh, to Ogen, which is a uh, a non not for profit uh, credit um, uh, agency, which basically gives people who in need because of the war either interest free or or very low interest uh, loans. 
So I think that he put it there because he'd, he'd like people to donate there. Um, Hila Lowers asks as follows, hi Hila. Uh, are you aware of any changes in the government budget trying to address welfare issues? Uh, there are no changes in the government budget. There has been some money, more money allocated to certain for specific needs. I as far as I know, there's been no, there's been no, no really comprehensive change in government budgets. There, there has been money allocated to very, very specific needs. For example, paying for the evacuees or paying for their, uh, their, uh, their, their hotels or wherever they're staying or giving them now some money to pay for Airbnb or wherever they're staying. But I don't think there's any major, as far as I know, there's been no major change in the way government allocates uh, uh, its budget. And there has been a lot of talk, as many of many people know here, there's been a lot of talk of the government taking money from money allocated according to coalition agreements and using that for other maybe welfare needs also. But as far as I know, this hasn't happened yet in any formal way. Well, so, I, so, I'm, so I'm going to skip over the next question and get back to it in a second, because Rafi Rohn actually asks the same basic question. See if you have anything to add to what you just said. He says, uh, I haven't heard any reference to what the government of Israel is actually funding right now. Do we know? Uh, what it's actually funding right now? Right. So, so what it's, in, it, with regard to welfare needs, what the, what the Ministry of Welfare has done is try to, 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 to move some of, its, some of its funding from certain projects to fund initiatives or, or, or um, initiatives or programs that are relevant specifically to the needs of the war or the people suffering from the war. That's as far as I know. Besides that, I don't think there's been any major spending uh, uh, by the government on welfare uh, 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 in addition to the regular budget, which uh, uh, as Shavit, who is here also as, and works with me, has shown in the figures that we have, is in fact smaller than the budget last year for welfare. Uh, Dina Friedman asks, is it true that if someone is missing and their whereabouts are not known, but they have not been officially recognized as kidnapped or dead, that the family is not entitled to any social services at this point. Uh, okay, so of course, everybody's entitled to social services, regardless, of course, if, uh, if what's, whatever their situation is. That the question is, if, if they're eligible for services according to legislation that gives much more generous and more comprehensive services to victims, to people who were lost, uh, who died or injured in war or, or in terrorist attacks or hostile, uh, a hostile action. Generally, there is some a process of, 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 of trying to verify if people are uh, eligible or not. As far as I know, but, but, I, uh, but I can't say definitely, as far as I know, that the government has tried to expedite and, and make this process much quicker. And generally, in times of war, the, 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 the government not, or the, the National Insurance Institute or the Ministry of Defense is much more, much more flexible about deal addressing or providing support, immediate support. Question is, I think, what will happen in another year or so, but that's a different story. But, but with regard to immediate support, as far as I know, the government normally is, is relatively flexible about these needs. 
Uh, let me correct myself, or actually Boaz corrected me. Boaz Ram put on the connection, excuse me, to Ogen that I mentioned before. The reason he put the uh, the uh, connection there, the link there, was not in order to ask people for donations, but rather in order to, so that you would, you, if you know people who are in need, you could refer them to their organization and they would be able to get loans in order to help them through this uh, very, very difficult time. And Boaz, I appreciate for uh, for representing it incorrectly. Um, next question. Do you anticipate any shifts in civil society as it relates to welfare or its relationship to government after the war? Um, good question. And my answer is I don't know. Certainly, certainly there is, has been a change in civil society. As I said, all these initiatives, these, these local or national initiatives that began during the war, I have no doubt that some of them will continue to exist after the war, is, uh, after the war ends. And of course, this can, may lead to, 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 to changes in the way the government or us as a society relate to welfare and welfare needs. The government is trying, and I think, I think we, should, uh, we should note that, you know, that we, we tend to, 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 to criticize government. There are a lot of great people working in government under very, very difficult conditions. And, and, and these people are trying, for example, to create co collaboration with either civil society or organizations such as the the center for uh, for uh, help food for the the uh, the um, center for food security which is uh, or the, the uh, which is a government or semi government organization so there's a lot of collaboration going on and i hope that this will lead to 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 better thinking about dealing with welfare needs after after the war and maybe different thinking um, the next question we have here from Ita uh, Prince Gibson. Are the people who have been evacuated from places like Be'eris, Deirot, et cetera, recognized as victims of terrorist activity? No, not everybody who was evacuated is recognized as victims of terrorist activity. They're recognized as evacuees. I would think that people from Be'eri who directly in some way were affected would be recognized. But I don't think that, but certainly not everybody was evacuated. We know the numbers, about 1,700 people have been recognized as, as eligible under this law. But we know that I think from the South, between 60 and 70,000 people were evacuated. So clearly not everybody and most, the vast majority were not. They're recognized as evacuees and they, they get government support for the period when they're when they when they're back for as long as they're not back in their homes. Okay, Anat Gaffney asks, I think there's general collective trauma among kids having fears and adults. Do you know if there is a way to address that? Well, people, I have to, I have grandchildren also, but a lot of kids, uh, of course, this is an issue. And, and there's been a lot of talk about uh, about addressing trauma uh, in different ways. There's a lot of people involved in trying to do this. And I think both in the community and uh, on, on online, there's a lot of talk about that. Um, and of course, this is, I'm not talking about the, the kids who were, who were in these communities that were directly, directly affected. Of course, that's a very, very different issue. But of course, there are efforts to deal with trauma, and uh, and this is what social workers, psychologists, uh, and other professionals do in in in, in the community in communities in in Fasaba or in Taipei or in uh, Jerusalem. Of course, this is part of what they do. Hey, uh, Ayala Cohen wants to know: 
Of the experience in the Second Lebanon War, the enormous role of civil society was ultimately problematic. Do you think we have learned anything from this time? What do you think needs to be done for the, for the Ministry of, of Welfare to take a more significant leading role? Well, well, firstly, the Ministry of Welfare has to be the Ministry of Welfare and not one of five different ministries of welfare. So firstly, the Ministry of Welfare should be a stronger ministry. It should, I think it should deal with both welfare and labor issues. The question, of course, is always the political, the, the political strength of whoever's leading this ministry and the level, level of funding, the degree to which the government prioritizes these issues. When governments think that when, when governments think that issues are important, then the ministry dealing with them can also play a major role in providing services, in determining policy, and also working with civil society. So that's a that is a political issue. I think really it depends on the degree to which the government or people who want to influence the government can make sure this is an issue. In certain periods, short periods in the history of our country, poverty was a major issue and governments and, pol and policies are adopted because of that. But very, but in generally issues of social, social policy, social services have not been a major issue. And the result is that the Ministry of Welfare is a relatively weak ministry. Uh, Rafi Rohn has asked if you know how many have been evacuated in the north. Nir has already answered that question. He said about 61,000 have been evacuated in the yeah. north. And so, so 130,000 is about 70,000 from the, from the south and 60,000 right. from the north. That's but, right. but, but the numbers are perhaps larger because these are people that the government knows have been. A, Evacu have been evacuated, but like people who left on their own, on their own without going through the government, I, I suppose the numbers, I've seen the numbers and the numbers probably about 200,000 in all. Okay, Karen is adding to the conversation. She tells us that yesterday morning she came to the finance committee in the Knesset to present the efficient and useful economic plan she wrote. Grant in exchange for volunteering during wartime. There was a mess and everyone was shouting at everyone else. I couldn't understand what the role of the finance committee members is. Is this a committee that has powers? Do you have access to the ability and the ability to influence the members of the finance committee? As it seems only the minister of finance decides how to redistribute the budget. I understood from members of the national economic Commi economy committee that the prime minister does not deal with the economic issues and left it to the treasury. Um, that uh, do you want to answer that or should I? Oh, uh, no, go ahead. Okay, so the finance ministry, of course, the finance ministry is in fact one of the most important important parliamentary committees in Israel. It has to approve both the budget and any change in the budget. So it, ha it has a lot of power. But of course, the coalition, or the governing governing coalition, is also uh, dominant in the finance in the finance committee. So generally, the finance committee will do what the government wants. Uh, or at least what who, what the chair of the committee wants to make sure that Haredi issues are dealt with in a in a positive way. Shouts are very common in in committee parliamentary committees in Israel. If this is your first, then uh, then I, I'm sorry that you were surprised. We teach a course to our students, and we spend three or four days with students in the Knesset every year, and so they know what goes on in committees, and and very often people shout. But committees have a major role to play, not sometimes not just in passing legislation, but in putting issues on the agenda. And you can put issues on the agenda in committees, and, and sometimes this actually leads to changes in policy. Personally, 
I'm not sure I have a lot of power over the finance committee. Maybe Avi has more than I do. I, I, I used to, uh, uh, but, but at this point I don't have as much. But, uh, but, but yes, so sometimes they do uh, uh, play an important role. Sometimes they play a role in blocking things that you thought you, uh, that, that, that should probably go through, but they, but they, but they don't because they get blocked in committee. Uh, Ita Prince Gibson asks, this is a very, very interesting question. Would you predict that social gaps will increase as, as a result of the situation? How will that affect social tensions? Social gaps could increase because of the situation. Of course, this depends, for example, on how many people will lose their jobs and how long they'll lose their jobs for. But it also depends on policies. So if policies are uh, adopted that will prevent increases in social gaps, then we can prevent that inequality growing or poverty growing. So this really depends on the on, on how long the conflict lasts, what its impact on society is, on, on the economy is, and what policies the government adopts to try to address uh, issues of inequality. Unfortunately, issues of inequality and addressing poverty have not been a, a major issue with uh, a major part of the government agenda in recent years. And, there is, and one of the results of that is that we have seen poverty and inequality growing. So I hope, I hope that this will be an issue on the agenda and now the policies that deal with inequality. This is very, very important if we want a society that can work together over time and address its problems. Johnny, I think I would just add one thing to that, even though I'm, I know this is your, your seminar and not, and not mine, your webinar, but uh, I would just add to that, that we do know that there are large gaps between uh, the periphery and the center of the country. And the people who are most affected by what's going on are the people in the periphery. So, so if they're going to be in effect, it would be clearly the effect of harming those people who are already starting off in a, le in a less favorable position. Um, so, so it would be a real concern and a lot needs to be done to make sure that doesn't happen. I believe we've run to our last question. If there are no more questions, then I think we're just going to thank Johnny. You've got a few more seconds to put something in before I finish. Uh, just thank Johnny for a, a very, very interesting, very informative uh, discussion. And I'm glad you all came. Welcome to all of you. And uh, we look forward, look forward to seeing you at our next, uh, at our next meeting. And as uh, people just started writing here, stay, everybody stay safe.